This is a class on the novel, but also on modernity. As we move into T.S. Eliot, we are moving away from our focus on the novel and towards our focus on modernity. Modernity, whose origins we encountered last year in Descartes and Bacon and the Enlightenment thinkers, seeks to conquer nature for the improvement of man's material conditions and to establish society on rational principles. Both Dostoevsky and T.S. Eliot critique this project, though from different historical moments. In Brothers K, Dostoevsky is concerned about how modernity isolates men from each other. As Mikhail points out, everyone is concerned only about his own fullness and how it isolates man from God. Think again of the defense attorney's demand that the mystical definition of fatherhood be kept out of the sphere of real life. He wants standards that are rational and humane, and his position makes a lot of sense. But how can we expect a son who has been abused by his father to consider that father a father? It's a standard that exceeds human capacity. But for Dostoevsky, the mystical definition exists, even if our reason can't grasp it. And those who refuse or question the path of mysticism, like Yvonne, experience psychic dissonance as they are internally torn between the path of modern rationality and Christian mysticism. Smer Dukov, the character who seems to experience no such torment between mysticism and, 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 and modern rationalism, is is utterly terrifying, a parasite who hates his own origins. Modern rationalism is, for Dostoevsky, an attack on the very sources of life. And it is the characters who embrace mysticism, who embrace God's love and actively share that love with others, who find the most happiness. Now, T.S. Eliot, who's born seven years after Dostoevsky dies, is also critical of the modern project. It also sees it as creating this condition of isolation for man. T.S. Eliot was born in 1888 and he died in, 18, in 1965. He was an American who came from a swanky Boston family, but he actually grew up in Missouri. He attended Harvard where he studied philosophy, literature, Indian philosophy, and Sanskrit. And note that there are allusions to places in India and to, uh, to Buddhism and to Hinduism in the wasteland. So it's a poem that incorporates, and Eliot himself incorporates both the East and the West. Eliot moves to England after he graduates and eventually becomes an English citizen. T.S. Eliot was a literary critic as well as a poet. He was the editor of Criterion, a literary magazine, and we'll be talking about T.S. Eliot as, as a critic uh, in, in just a little bit. Now, Eliot lives through World War I, that cataclysmic event that seemed to show the emptiness of the dreams of enlightenment, of a society organized on rational, rational principles pursuing human flourishing in this life. It was a dream that ended as young men from great European countries slaughtered each other in millions. Roger Scruton describes World War I as, quote, the conflict in which European civilization had committed suicide, just as Greek civilization had done in the Peloponnesian War. Now, I think, in some sense, uh, it, might, it might be strange to think of T.S. Eliot as, uh, as a critic of modernity. After all, his poetry looks and sounds so modern. The Wasteland is different from any of the other poems you've studied in the curriculum. The Second Coming is the closest to it, both chronologically and stylistically. Scruton writes, quote, The man who overthrew the 19th century in literature and inaugurated the age of free verse, alienation, and experiment 
was also the man who, in 1928, was to describe himself as classical in literature, royalist in politics, and Anglo-Catholic in religion. So Eliot is a modernist poet, but according to, to Louis Menon, quote, modernism is a reaction against the modern. So modernist poets use stylistic innovations like free verse, like uh, fragmentation, like ever-shifting voices. But this is part of a, for Eliot at least, a critique of modernity. And it's an attempt to actually bring about a cultural renewal. So he and his fellow modernist poets, they see themselves as responding to a crisis in Western civilization, depending on what period of time we're looking at for Eliot, what he thinks the answer is, or if he thinks there is an answer to that crisis, uh, really, really changes. And The Wasteland is written um, in 1922, which is before T.S. Eliot becomes an Anglo-Catholic. So it's it, it's coming out of spiritual agnosticism. Now, the crisis that, that Eliot sees in, in modernity is in part a crisis of poetry. According to Eliot, quote, in the 17th century, a disassociation of sensibility set in from which we have never recovered. He explains, quote, the difference is not a simple difference of degree between poets. It's something which had happened to the mind of England between the time of Dunn or Lord Herbert of Cherbury and the time of Tennyson and Browning. It is the difference between the intellectual poet and the reflective poet. Tennyson and Browning are poets and they think, but they do not feel their thought as immediately as the odor of a rose. A thought to Dunn was an experience. It modified his sensibility. So according to Eliot, Dunn, this is John Dunn, right? The author of uh, Batter, Batter My Heart. Dunn felt his thoughts. He experienced psychic integration. But for poets after him, feeling and thinking were separated. Quote, the sentimental age began early in the 18th century and continued. The poets revolted against the rationative, the descriptive. They thought and felt by fits, unbalanced reflected. Now, Eliot doesn't explain how this, disassoci this disassociation happened, and according to Menand, he, quote, never named a particular source for the dissociation of sensibility. But subsequent critics who have taken up Eliot's notion have felt free to blame it on the assortment of causes, including Baconian science, Cartesian philosophy, and the rise of capitalism. That's the end of the quote. Now, historical causation matters, but I'm not going to discuss it here in this lecture. I simply want to point out that we moderns do feel a kind of dissociation between reason and passion. We see this in Dostoevsky. Those characters who are most in line with the enlightened view of analytical reason tend to be the most heartless. Yvonne is certainly torn, but he, with his French Descartes-quoting devil, declares that love of neighbors is impossible. Remember that Raskolnikov's devotion to reason to reason leads him to criticize his compassion, his magnanimous charity uh, that almost seems absurd. Right? Rationally, he criticizes this as useless. It's not doing anything for anybody. Think even of Bazarov's dislike for sentiment, his commitment to scientific detachment, right? his position uh, of hostility towards romanticism. Eliot wants the poet to unite thought and feeling. For Eliot, quote, when a poet's mind is perfectly equipped for its work, 
that is constantly amalgamating disparate experience. The ordinary man's experience is chaotic, irregular, fragmentary. The latter falls in love or reads Spinoza, and these two experiences have nothing to do with each other, or with the noise of the typewriter or the smell of cooking. In the mind of the poet, these experiences are always forming new holes. For the poet, love and philosophy are connected. Poets take disparate elements of experience and combine them into new holes. An act that sounds a lot like Coleridge's view of the imagination, that the imagination has that, which has that synthetic power for Coleridge uniting. Eliot actually admired Coleridge a great deal. Eliot is seeking in the poet an integration of thought and emotion, an integration that he finds in the poetry before the 17th century. So really before the modern project begins. Now, while I think that Eliot is responding to the division of emotion and reason in modernity, he is most immediately responding to the romantics who he thinks continue the dissociation of reason and emotion. Eliot rejects the emotional subjectivity of romantic poetry. Now, to be clear, poetry is for him emotional as well as thoughtful. He's not Bazarov. He's not attacking sentiment. He doesn't think that a chemist is more useful than an emotional poet. But he doesn't want his poetry to be a display of his own personal emotional state. And in doing this, he actually sees himself as not inaugurating something new, but returning to an older tradition of poetic integration. He writes, quote, those who object to the artificiality of Milton or Dryden sometimes tell us to look into our hearts and write. But that is not looking deep enough. Racine or Dunn looked into a good deal more than the heart. One must look into the cerebral cortex, the nervous system, and the digestive tracts. So poetry for Eliot is not the outpouring of, of personal emotion. Now, I'm not sure that Eliot isn't being particularly fair to the romantics as a whole, but that's beside the point here. Where what he's pointing to is that poetry, poetry comes from a whole person and not just from the, not just from the heart. And Eliot wants a poetry uh, that is that is impersonal. The poet is not imposing the subjective I. He instead becomes the catalyst that connects an object and an emotion. Oxygen and sulfur dioxide, when in the presence of platinum, combine to form sulfurous acid. Eliot writes, quote, This combination takes place only if the platinum is present. Nevertheless, the newly formed acid contains no trace of platinum, and the platinum itself is apparently unaffected, has remained inert, neutral, and unchanged. The mind of the poet is the, sh is the shred of platinum. It may partly or exclusively operate upon the experience of the man itself. But the more perfect the artist, the more completely separate in him will be the man who suffers and the mind which creates. The more perfectly will the mind digest and transmute the passions which are its material. So for Eliot, the poet's mind is like the platinum. It's necessary for the combination of elements, for that, right, that creating of that unity. Here, in this case, he's really thinking about the passions. But it doesn't leave a trace in the elements themselves. The perfect artist doesn't impose his own suffering on what he creates. Here, I think Eliot sounds a lot like Keats, who talks about the poet as a chameleon, who has no personality, but through kind of self-abnegation is continually entering into whatever object or subject he's trying to depict. Now, of course, Eliot's scientific 
metaphor here, right? It's very striking and puts us into right, the, the world of modernity. Now, in addition to poetry being impersonal, Elliot also thought that poetry should be difficult. The Wasteland, as I'm sure you realize, is a very difficult poem. It's difficult to read, difficult to follow, difficult to understand, notoriously so. Eliot writes, quote, Poets in our civilization as it exists at present must be difficult. Our civilization comprehends great variety and complexity, and this variety and complexity playing upon a refined sensibility must produce various and complex results. The poet must become more and more comprehensive, more elusive, more indirect in order to force, to dislocate if necessary language into his meaning. So the poet must respond to his own time, to the civilization in which he is in. And the civilization in which the modern poet finds himself is one of variety and complexity. And so his poetry and the language of his poetry, the style of his poetry, must reflect that variety, that complexity. He may even need to dislocate language into his meaning. The dislocation of language that Eliot uses, the fragments, the sudden shifts from high to low, from one language into another. This is all done deliberately in order to force language into meaning. The easy sentimental poetry of the past is not in this moment, in, in the 20th century for Eliot, is not true to, to the nature of reality itself. And poetry must be true to the real. And the real for him, this moment, is, is, is one of variety, uh, of complexity, of, of, right, of, of fragmentation and isolation. So his style is, in some sense, responding to the state of the state of modernity. Now, this response to the moment doesn't mean that poetry progresses, but it does change. Eliot writes, he, the, he meaning the poet, must be quite aware of the obvious fact that art never improves, but the material of art is never quite the same. Right, so uh, Eliot's difficulty is a response to his own time. Uh, in response, it's, it's, it's part of the, the changing nature of art that he sees. So for Eliot, poetry should be a unity of thought and feeling. It should be impersonal. It should be difficult. It should be written in a tradition. Eliot declares, quote, we dwell with satisfaction upon the poet's different from his difference from his predecessors, especially his immediate predecessors. We endeavor to find something that can be isolated in order to be enjoyed. Whereas if we approach a poet without this prejudice, we shall often find that not only the best, but the most individual parts of his work may be those in which the dead poets, his ancestors, assert their immortality most vigorously. So literary critics at the time tend to focus, tended to focus on the original and the unique. But for Eliot, a poet is often at his best and paradoxically at his most original when he is most in the presence of tradition. This is really striking, especially if we, if we remember Descartes' attitude towards tradition. He finds the literature of the past to be largely unhelpful in his search for truth. He really rejects the the books uh, that he has been exposed to in his schooling and, and instead right, withdraws inward into the exercise of his own mind. Eliot is actually setting forth this idea that the poet should turn to tradition. Now, according to Eliot, tradition, quote, cannot be inherited, and if you want it, you must obtain it by great labor. It involves, in the first place, the historical sense, which we make 
call nearly indispensable to anyone who would continue to be a poet beyond his 25th year. And the historical sense involves a perception, not only of the pastness of the past, but of its presence. The historical sense compels a man to write, not merely with his own generation in his bones, but with a feeling that the whole of the literature of Europe from Homer, and within it the whole of the literature of his own country, has a simultaneous existence and composes a simultaneous order. This historical sense, which is a sense of the timeless as well as of the temporal, and of the timeless and of the temporal together, is what makes a writer traditional. And it is at the same time what makes a writer most acutely conscious of his place in time, of his contemporaneity. Tradition does not destroy, so according to Eliot, tradition does not destroy a writer's relationship to his own time. Rather, it makes him even more aware of his own time. And tradition is something, as Eliot points out, that can't simply be inherited. It's actually something that one acquires through great effort, through great labor. I think then in the end for, for Eliot, we, we may not necessarily have to choose between the epic valorized past and the contemporaneous present. Those two that uh, Bakhtin right, uh, says are, that belong to the epic tradition and to the novel. Indeed, Eliot doesn't actually see the past as something that is closed. Perhaps an epic is closed in itself, but for Eliot, when a new epic is written, it actually changes our relationship to the old epic. The literary tradition has a wholeness to it, but that wholeness is not for him unchanging. When a new work comes in, it actually, for Eliot, adjusts the existing order of the tradition. He writes, quote, the existing monuments form an ideal order among themselves, which is modified by the introduction of the new, the really new work of art among them. The existing order is complete before the new work arrives. For order to persist after the supervention of novelty, the whole existing order must be, if ever so slightly altered, and so the relations, proportions, values of each work of art readjusted. So the value of the Aeneid to the whole tradition changes when the Commedia is written. Thus for Eliot, the true poet is not isolated from, from his past. Uh, right? he, is, he is connected to that past, but that past doesn't enslave him. Uh, that past is actually something that in, in some way can be shaped and transformed by the present poet. There is a living quality to the tradition that Eliot, that Eliot is, is pointing to here. But that living, that living quality of the tradition involves an author who is not just um, not just aware of the tradition, but uh, he has the feeling uh, that the whole of literature of Europe, right, from Homer, from Homer on, is somehow right deeply uh, Im imbibed. That he has deeply imbibed it, uh, has become a part of who he is. And then out of that, the poet becomes uh, or is new and creative and original. And when he is new and creative and original, he actually then transforms the tradition that has come before him. Mm -hmm. 
Now, given how experimental his poetry is, I think it's actually sometimes surprising how conservative Eliot sounds. He writes, quote, Someone said, the dead writers are remote from us because we know so much more than they did. Precisely. And they are that which we know. So Eliot, again, think of Descartes uh, and the, and the other Enlightenment thinkers, does not dismiss tradition as, as backward or enslaving. Enslaving, rather, it is the very source of our knowledge. As schools like ours, like, like WCC, share Eliot's view of, of tradition. So we have to see T.S. Eliot as stylistically revolutionary, but ideologically situating himself within the great tradition of, of European literature.